Hi, everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know. It's okay not to know what you believe or why you believe it. It's okay not to know where you're going in the journey on this frontier. What this podcast really tries to communicate is that we are all in different places on the unknown of the frontier. My name is Nathan Whitaker. And I'm Ryan Harris. And today we're going to do something a little different. We kind of talked about it last time as we were uh, finishing our project. Uh, Just as a reminder, most of this season is going to be talking about a project of what it means to have a church or community on the frontier. And you can, of course, listen to our first few podcasts on that as we explore that and, you know, disagree and unpack that. Uh, But we want to take a little break, let those thoughts percolate, let us have a break from it and uh, do something different. And so I'm going to hand it over to Ryan as he introduced what that is, and uh, we'll take it from there. Yes. So today we're having our second ever guest on the podcast. The uh, He's very illustrious and well-known. Um, so yeah. So our guest today is my friend, Bobby. Bobby is actually my roommate. So we've lived together for quite a while now. And um, we... Oh, yeah, we met at some horrible movie that a friend ambushed me with that (laughs) separate story. But the gist was he didn't tell me what it was about, because if he had, I wouldn't have gone to see it. But um, (laughs) what movie was it? Oh, gosh. What was that? The Wise, the Wise Kids, the Wise Kids. And it's actually a very good film. Um, Well, it wasn't that the movie was bad. It was that it was really sad and I wouldn't didn't really want to see that then. But, you know. Anyway, <laughs> so Bobby and I met then and we've just, you know, been friends ever since. And so, Bobby, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about history and specifically, maybe more specifically, uh, church history. And the reason we're going to do that is because, I mean, it's easy, I think, for those of us who came from an evangelical background, certainly, to either be ignorant of or even suspicious of a lot of church history. You know, I'm going to steal Bobby's line as we were preparing for this. (laughs) He said, a lot of us in the conservative world tend to view church history as the apostles. Then some of the reformers, depending on whatever, you know, tradition we're in and then us. And that's pretty much it. You know, Um, we're a lot of us are suspicious of history and tradition and that kind of thing, too. So. We're going to talk about that today of why some of that might matter more than we have thought or more than we've been taught. And so what I thought we'd start with is, Bobby, why don't you tell us um, a little about yourself and what you're studying? Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, again, thanks for thanks for having me here today. It's exciting to be here. Um, so yeah, like, like Ryan said, right, um, I've known him for a while. Uh, we met here... Um, because I'm I'm here finishing up my PhD, uh, so I am studying the Byzantine Empire, which a lot of you have probably not heard of because I hadn't really heard of it until I started studying it. Um, but uh, sort of that's that's what I'm working on very generally. Um, more specifically, uh, I look at the interactions between the Byzantine Empire, sort of this eastern half of the Roman Empire centered on modern-day Istanbul um, in the 7th and 8th centuries during some of their conflicts with early Islam. Um, A few times during the 7th and 8th centuries, the Arabs sort of in their um, uh, 
wave of expansion after the death of Muhammad attacked the Byzantine capital a number of times. And no one had really written about that. They're pretty significant events. And so that's what my dissertation looks at. That's what my research is focused on. Uh, and in fact, um, exciting news, I just finished a full draft of my dissertation on Friday. Yay. Yay. Uh, <laughs> very much a yay moment. Um, yes. But uh, but yeah, so that's that's kind of broad strokes what it is that I'm working on um, and what, what my research looks at. Okay. And so what, I mean, what made you study history, especially history at that, you know, that depth or that level? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's, um, that's a good question, right? I think part of it for me, and, and I think we're relatively similar in this regard, Ryan, is I love story. I love narrative. Um, I think it's an I important- he was very, he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's the thing for me is, um, I had some good teachers in high school uh, for history. Um, I loved English class and I loved history. Those were my two favorites. Um, and I think the good history teachers were that way because they were able to draw on ideas of story, ideas of narrative. They didn't present it as route facts, um, random dates to memorize. And yes, I know a lot of dates now because I am almost <laughs> a PhD, but, um, that's not the driving force of history for me. Uh, why why I enjoy it is because it really is this story of humanity, of of how we got from there to here sort of thing. And uh, to speak more specifically about why I am interested in something that is pretty objectively obscure. Um, <laughs> is, talking uh, about? There's probably 13 Byzantinists in the world, right? Yeah, at least, Ryan, at least. Um, I'm a jerk. As it, Well, no, as an aside, there was one time when I was with my department and um, it was all of the students who were doing Byzantine stuff, which was like five. Um, yeah. And we were all in a room and somebody said, you know, if a bomb went off right now, the entire field would be set back an entire generation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh. anyway, um, no, so I I um I went to a high school that was big on like classical education. So I learned Latin, was interested in kind of the ancient world for that reason, discovered the Byzantines thanks to a podcast. So podcasts are always important. Mm -hmm. Um and uh then decided to study them more fully in undergrad. Um, and just kind of fell fell in love with the empire. It's this fascinating place that has, you know, um, the best description of it I've ever heard is that the Byzantine Empire has a Greek mind, a Roman body, and a Christian soul. It's this mm -hmm. interesting blend of all of these things coming together um, to create fascinating people, fascinating events and stories. Um, and as I studied it more, I found this interaction with um, Islam to be really fascinating because it becomes the defining feature of the empire really it sort of lives between east and west um between the catholic world in the west and um the islamic world in the east and it's kind of sandwiched in between um and so looking at the seventh and eighth centuries when this dynamic really starts to take shape was really fascinating to me so that's kind of how i ended up um with this time period uh mm -hmm. and why uh sort of broadly I, I like history i guess yeah 
And just just to kind of connect some dots for everybody, um, you know, we started. I started this podcast by saying we're going to talk about why church history might be important. So I know you mentioned it a little bit, but um, how did this study of the Byzantine Empire kind of like how is that related to church history? Because if you just said that sentence, it sounds like you know I'm studying, uh, you know, any empire that's ever been, right? So right. No, I think I think that's uh, that's a really good question, and in um, in that description of the empire I gave, I think we've we've kind of got the little secret there, right? The little the little hint um, where I said that you know it has a Christian soul. Um, all of the church councils that determine you know what it is that uh, quote unquote Christian doctrine is, um, how it was understood, how Jesus works as being human and divine, all that stuff was settled in this empire. Um, mm. from the fourth through the uh, ninth? ninth centuries are the seven ecumenical councils, a fancy term to mean most of Christians got together and agreed on something. Um, right. And so that happens here in this empire. Um, and there's a, there's a great description from the fourth century, I believe, of uh, a traveler who went to Constantinople, the capital of the empire, and was complaining that he couldn't buy bread without somebody yelling a theological argument at him. <laughs> he couldn't do any of these things without just hearing it argued about over and over again. Um, this is an empire and a people where their faith permeated who they were. And so you, you can't understand the Byzantine Empire without understanding um, at least some elements of Christian history. Uh, and particularly for the Byzantines, um, the Eastern part of that, which is something, you know, coming from a, a Protestant background, um, the Western history of Catholicism is already relatively foreign. Um, mm -hmm. To go to the East and talk about Orthodoxy got even more, uh, it, it was a steep learning curve for a while. Yeah. I mean, you are a bit of a, uh, if you'll pardon the phrase, an odd duck in that way, <laughs> just in terms of, um, I meant to bring this up earlier, but just in terms of your own heritage, uh, theologically speaking, um, I mean, because you did not grow up as an Orthodox Christian, right? No, no. Uh, I grew up um, Baptist in sort of a generically reformed tradition. Um, you know, Baptist can mean all sorts of things. Any number of things, um, yeah. We weren't in the Southern Baptist tradition, but um, sort of theologically closer to uh, Presbyterians, except, you know, we we don't dunk babies. Um, sort of, uh, <laughs> I hope you don't dunk babies. <laughs> yes. Um, that's, uh, so that's kind of how I, how I grew up. That's the church I grew up in. That's where I was formed in what it meant to be Christian and sort of that broadly speaking, Protestant, Reformed, evangelical world. Um, but right when I was an undergrad, uh, I, I went to a non-denominational church, which usually just means Baptist without the right. name. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, that was a really great church. And then sort of since moving to St. Louis, um, I have gone to Presbyterian churches of varying stripes um, and I'm now actually back at a Baptist church again. Um, but in the course of that, right, I, I study at a Jesuit university, um, <laughs> and I study an Orthodox empire. Um, and so sort of excluding like the Copts and the Church of the East, I have some interaction with pretty much every branch of Christianity um, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting. I don't meet many people 
Um, I mean, some, I guess there are academics. If, I guess I would say if you're going to meet someone with that varied kind of heritage and understanding, it's more common in academics than otherwise. But mm-hmm. even within that group, it's it's interesting to me because I, you just got so much going on there. Right. Um, yeah, just the way you, you you put it as the the Baptist who studies with the Jesuits about the Orthodox Empire, and also now you mix Islam in there as well. So you know, mm-hmm. you've got a lot going on. So, um, okay. Okay, so I think that is kind of a, a good summary of uh, where you're coming from and, and, and why you study what you do. And, and maybe some of our listeners have now have some idea of what the Byzantine Empire is, because you might not have. <laughs> um, you're right. Yeah. So, um, so how is studying all of those varied things and all those varied um, theological systems and churches and empires and all of that? How has that affected your own faith? Because that's kind of the stuff we like to talk about on on here. Is mm-hmm. um, how has that been a part of your own journey um, in that way? Yeah. Well, I I, I think that's a that's a good and important question. Um, I think that sort of, you know, I could speak more broadly and then give some more specific examples. Um, Broadly speaking, I think what it's done is it has really um, sort of shaken me out of some of the thoughts that I had when I was younger, uh, sort of growing up in this evangelical tradition where, right, um, it's not just that, that, um, you know, uh, Protestants had the right answer. Um, It was our particular kind of branch of it, um, that, little, right. that little Baptist-y group. Um, and I think one of the things that all of this type of study of the the history of Christianity in a broad sense, I mean, that's not what I study, but it is interwoven into everything I look at, um, has really made me stop and step back, sort of given me a humility in regards to what I believe and 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 what I think about God, what I think about scripture or doctrine or any of those sorts of things. Because right, I I look at um, a patriarch of Constantinople in the eighth century, or I look at a sixth century Pope or a random 13th century French peasant. All of them loved Jesus and that looked very different. The way they practiced those things looked different. Some of the things they thought, I don't really agree with. And yet it's forced me to really consider, well, what actually does it mean to be a Christian? And what have I put in that category that doesn't need to be there? Um, what did I inherit in that category that doesn't need to be there? So in in growing up, it, it sounds like, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I don't know that you would have heard that if you're not a Baptist, you're going to hell. But it sounds like what you were presented with was this idea that even if it wasn't said explicitly, explicitly, yeah, but we have, we, we got it, right? Like, right. like we have the truth and these other ones are some variation of us. They just don't know. Like that, is that too harsh or is it that kind of idea? I think that that's, so I, I want to be careful, right? Because I like the church I grew up in. There were good people, good, good pastor, stuff like that. Um, and so I don't know if any of that stuff was ever said explicitly, right? But it's at least right. what I grew up knowing. Um, right. and it's kind of the assumed thing. Like it was similar for me, and not that anybody ever said those things that I can remember, but it was just kind of the assumed knowledge of, yeah, there are other Christians, but you know, 
the best kind of Christians are our kind kind of idea. Yes. That's not quite the right way to put it, but it'd well, be but more I mean, of a benevolent way of saying that, I think. I, I, I think I can sum it up in a phrase that, now it, it's possible that I have made up that I heard this phrase. I, I really don't think I did. I can't tell you who said it. Even if I could, I wouldn't tell you. Um, <laughs> but I, I have, I have memories of sort of the idea of the phrase Christians and Catholics being thrown yeah, around yeah. as a kid. Uh-huh. Um, and so things like that, right. Where, um, where it just creates a distinction between, and I mean, to take reformed uh, terminology, right. The elect quote unquote, right. um, and kind of everyone else. Yeah, so, <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, the elect and the non-elect are kind, I mean, that's, it kind of forces that dichotomy. I don't know how you could have anything else. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so you grow up with all of that stuff. And then, like you said, you're reading everything from, you know, the church councils to uh, Pope, whoever, to patriarch, whoever, and all of this. And is it that you're seeing things that you just hadn't considered before, or is there more to it than that? I think that's definitely a a part of it, right? Um, I think the two things sort of the two-pronged thing in examining all these different traditions of Christianity that's really impacted me is A, seeing the depth of their faith and their love of God um, has really forced me to reconsider the importance of doctrinal difference, at least sort of for me under under a particular umbrella, right? There, there still needs to be some things there, but much of it no, it's, it seems like having a different stance on, say, the veneration of icons um, or the importance of Mary or things like that does not seem to be a determining factor in whether one is a Christian like I uh, would have thought it was. Even um, if they've never said the magic prayer, or, you know, the Romans road kind of idea that right. might still be a Christian. Yes, yes. Yeah. Who could have foreseen? I know, um, right? But, uh, but yeah, so I think that's a big part of it, just sort of forcing me to interact with these people who clearly love God and do it in a way that's very different than me. Um, but I think sort of more specifically to the second part of your question, right? Like it forced me to interact with some of these new ideas in my own, my own faith, my own experience, um, and try to make sense of them. Because when I saw, right, these, these early theologians or these early religious figures, these early Christians, um, clearly loving God and doing things and formulating things and thinking about things differently than me, it made me wonder, well, can I think about these things differently than two? Um, and so, for example, in, in part of my story, um, you know, I, uh, uh, I, I realized pretty young that I, I was gay. Um, and growing up in kind of an evangelical framework, right, there's not a lot of space for that. No, that's um, no bueno in that world. No, uh, very no bueno. Um, and I think one of the things that was particularly difficult for me, as you know, the 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 concept of of hate the sin, love the sinner, or all this sort of stuff, is I I really wrestled with sort of into college as I started trying to make sense of these things. Um, I really wrestled with this idea of uh, it, it felt like I was sinning by existing. Hmm just because, you know, I was attracted to a dude walking down the street. It was involuntary. I I didn't choose for it to happen, but it happened. 
And that was wrong in the formulation that I grew up with because there was either sin or righteousness. That was it. Sin or not sin. Yeah. Yes. Um, but for instance, in my, was this first year? I think it was the second semester of my first year of grad school. Um, I took an introduction to medieval theology course, which was really fascinating. I read some really neat stuff, things, things that I really enjoyed. Um, one of the texts that I, I don't know if anyone has ever enjoyed reading it, um, <laughs> but it was particularly powerful for me was we, we read Thomas Aquinas, right? The yeah. premier 13th century, oh, I probably got that wrong, 12th century scholastic, um, mm -hmm. the guy who kind of epitomizes this concept in the, uh, the Middle Ages, in the scholastic period, that by golly, we can know everything. God made us mm -hmm. rational, and any question that we have, if we just use the reason he gave us, uh, we'll be able to sort it out. Right. So right, Thomas Aquinas writes this big long book, the Summa Theologica, the sum of all theology. Um, to <laughs> answer just that title alone. Is something, <laughs> isn't it? Though he was a humble man. Um, he Thomas was kind Aquinas. of like a proto Wittgenstein, I think. But <laughs> I'll take Sorry, anyway. for it. Um, anyway, uh, separate. Go on. He solved <laughs> theology. Yeah, yeah. Wittgenstein said he solved philosophy in his one book. But oh, I think I do actually know about that yeah. because I think you joked about it with me. Anyway, yeah. um, but so right. Uh, I remember reading some of the ways it's set up. The way that he structures it is, you know, he poses a question and then he gives all possible answers to the question. And then he gives reasons why every possible answer could be right and reasons why every possible answer could be wrong. And that then he- exhausting. <laughs> it is exhausting. And then he finally takes a stance at the end and says, this is the correct one because, mm. um, and so it's very interesting. And I, I remember the one that really affected me. I could not tell you which question it is if you wanted to find it. I'm sure I could track it down eventually with a little bit of research. But um, it was exploring this concept of moral neutrality, um, whether actions or deeds or, or temptation um, was in itself evil, right? And sort of growing up there there was no concept of a morally neutral thing um that's just not a type of language we had but i remember reading this and really struggling with it especially in the context of me trying to make sense of what it, it, am i sinning just by being tempted by a guy am i sinning just by being attracted to somebody and reading through aquinas gave me language to say no those things are neither good nor evil they just are um mm -hmm. And uh, it, it gave me space to take a step back from sort of being in this horrific existential angst um, to really think about, well, okay, these things just happen. It's, it's what I do with them that is good or bad. Um, it's not the things themselves. It's not the desires or the temptations themselves. And that really started a whole process of, because according to Aquinas, right, something that makes it uh, what would make it morally neutral is that it can be acted on either in a good way or a bad way. Okay. Um, and so it really started a process for me of thinking, well, okay, I know from my framework and how I grew up, right, what acting on these desires in a sinful way would look like. But what 
what could it mean to act on them in a good way, in a God-honoring way? And that couldn't just mean pretending they weren't there, right? That that wouldn't leave these morally neutral. That would leave them right. evil. I'm going to suspect you you uh, tried that route anyway. Yeah, I did for a long time. Yeah. It didn't work. Yeah. Um, but right, that really started this whole process for me of trying to reconsider what does God want from me in this? How can I glorify him with my sexuality? As, as a gay man who wants to follow Jesus, how can that work? What is a positive vocation for my sexuality rather than sort of just living in this state that I had grown up in that my evangelical framework had taught me of, you know, it is either all good or all evil. And it was clearly all evil from how I was taught. So it, it that, that was a really big thing, just an example for me, right, of how sort of examining some of these very different ways of engaging with God, engaging with theology, engaging with Christianity helped shape my own thinking and transform some of the course of my life. Yeah, it's fascinating just because, I mean, there very well could be someone else out there, but you are the first person I've met who said Aquinas did that for them. <laughs> Aquinas would probably be surprised, but... Yeah, he, he probably would. <laughs> but um, but that's... As a, kinda... as a quick side, is Aquinas, is that Aristotle? Is that what he follows? Uh, yeah, so um, that's uh, sort of after the reintroduction of Aristotelian thought into the West okay. that sort of drives scholasticism. He's kind of yeah. using the Aristotelian method for theology that, or is that too simplistic? I mean, yeah, that, that, I, I think that does it. Um, philosophy is not my strong suit. Um, and so ours I, either, well, mine either, but that doesn't stop me. <laughs> very fair. Uh, the, in, the reintroduction of Aristotle sort of channeled through um, Iberia because right, little tiny history lesson, you can cut this if you want to, but um, <laughs> right, the uh, the Arabs become really fascinated as sort of newly introduced to this Hellenic philosophy after they conquer half of the old Hellenic world um, of trying to figure out how to make these philosophical ideas work in a monotheistic framework. And so they do, they adapt Aristotle um, to work with monotheism in an Islamic context. And then in Spain, which is sort of by the high middle ages, half Muslim and half Christian, there's a lot of interaction between Christians and Muslims, translations and interpretations and commentaries of Aristotle enter into the Christian world through the Muslim world and then get taken up in the new universities of Europe and become kind of the driving force of scholasticism, the driving force of new research, new study, new attempts to know everything. Well, I th find that fascinating because uh, what I'm hearing in your story is that, uh, and you didn't say this, this is just what I'm hearing, is when complexity became a reality, the complexity of God, the complexity of theology, it gave you freedom. Uh, what would you say to that? Is that too simplistic? Of course, it's going to be too simplistic, but is it kind of getting close to where where you were? I think so. Um, I know, right? Sort of just just as a person, um, my my temperament, my mentality, my background really has given me through most of my life a need for black and white concrete answers. Right? This is either true or false. This is either the 
proper way to do things or the wrong way. And sort of um, the more that I've engaged the multiplicity of Christian history, of, of the history of the body, um, of the big capital C church, um, the more I've realized that, well, faithful people have answered questions differently throughout the history of the church. And that that did give me some freedom. Um, took a long time. I, I'm not good at that. I still want the answers. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, like even so, um, right when, so uh, uh, going back to the, the question of sexuality there, right? So Aquinas sort of started me and made me thinking about this. And then it was, you know, from that point, a whole year spent considering, you know, could it be possible that all of these different ways of interpreting scripture that I'd always heard and thought were just, you know, complete nonsense? Um, could there be some validity to them? And then that really helped me. It, it, it gave me a space and a framework to consider that possibility. But even then, right after I found myself convinced by different interpretations of Romans 1 or what have you. Um, it took me six months to really accept that um, because I still had that idea of, well, I, I have to know for sure. I have yeah. to be in the black or the white. I, I have to do it. And it was a recognition, finally, ultimately, of saying, well, God is bigger than that. And I, I, don't, I don't understand, and I want him to show me, and he just clearly is not. So um, I'm going to step out in faith and trust that in the same way he's he's been faithful to all of these people throughout all of time, that he can do that for me. And if I'm going wrong, he'll show that to me. And he hasn't done that yet. I love that. I uh, One of the, the frames, or let's say the threads that I follow is what's the moment or what's the experience one has that helps them I like how you said it made room. Um, I used freedom. You know, there's lots of ways you could talk about that. And I used to always get confused when scientists and others would say, oh, when I look up into the sky and I see the vast complexity of the universe, it just feels so awe-inspiring. And they kind of do this thing where they feel so small in this, in the midst of this big thing. And and my previous binary <laughs> expression of the faith, that was terrifying to me because it was something where, you know, I felt like I was bigger than all those things. I could at least wrap my mind around the universe at some level. And now uh, on the other side of some of the journey that I've taken, I get that. I get it fully and completely. Now, I can't look up in the sky and feel that way, but I can certainly look at how the church has interacted with philosophy and feel the same thing and say, oh, like Plato and Plotinus, they, well, Plotinus kind of helped a lot of this go forward for Augustine. Of course, you know that. And mm -hmm. um, yet now we're in an era where we're fighting against uh, Kant and others of how they've thought about things. And we're all Christians and it's unique how we all fit into that situation. And yet the experience is the same where 
we're all trying to figure it out with the language we have either knowingly, you know, if you're a philosopher or unknowing because philosophy is a life breath of uh, culture and the way that we talk about things. And it, it gave me the same room. So uh, that's my like really horrible way of saying I, I empathize. I understand that because uh, it makes sense to me of how some experience can open up and make room for, uh, I would say, growth and faith. Yeah. It's amazing to me how whenever we hear <clears throat> stories, whether it's mine or Nate's or Bobby's or Trevor's when he was on here, or just people I meet, there's always something that creates this spaciousness that wasn't there before. And sometimes it's a, it's a traumatic thing, you know, and sometimes it's more of a aha kind of thing and whatever it is. But it seems like part of being on this kind of journey requires that, I don't know, like is shattering, is that, is that too dramatic of a word? Or um, there's there's something or some series of things that seem to make our categories not work anymore. I think in some ways, I don't know, as, as you're talking, as you're making that, I'm, I'm thinking of, right, Paul's metaphor of looking through the glass darkly. Um, and I feel like sometimes, right, at least for me, I got so focused on the glass that I missed the fact that if I looked into it, I'd see the room behind it. Um, yeah. And there's so much more back there, so much more um, of God to understand. And, and yeah, we've, we've got that that dim glass, that dim mirror in the way that sort of makes it hard to see it fully, that makes it hard to comprehend, but we need something that can shake us out of staring at the glass and looking into it. You're talking about living in this way where everything is A or B and there's no in between, and yet your own self and your life required that not, like it made it not work anymore, you know? Um, right. I talk about a disruption of the world, right? Right. No, I, I think that's that's exactly right is, is you know, I, th I think what happened and I think one of the things that can really cause these changes is to find um, basically, right, we, we all have models that we operate in. Um, this can this can tie into some of the ways that I view history, at least, uh, because I think that that idea of narrative, that idea of story really impacts how I think. I, I think chronologically, I think narratively, that stuff is in my head and, and I'm trained in it, right? As a historian, um, I think my job is to try to understand history, to try to present it, to try to get to know it better, and to try to present it to everybody else. Um, and I think, right, that's, that's difficult. Um, some people would look at what a historian does and say, well, that seems kind of pointless, right? Haven't people done that already? Um, <laughs> you're only talking about things that have already happened. So what else, what new can you do? Um, we won't bring up Nietzsche. <laughs> no, uh, don't. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that, right, uh, in my perspective, the role of the historian is to try to understand that history better. And we can never fully know what happened in the past. We can't. We weren't there. And even the best evidence and the best data can't get us to have been there. It doesn't work that way. But ideally, right, as different historians sort of do the work and then build on the work of others who have come before, um, we get closer and closer to it, sort of like a, an asymptotic line, 
right? Um, we can get closest to the limit, but we'll never actually touch it um, because there's always going to be that gap that we can't understand. And I think as what, what leads to us getting closer is new data, new interpretations, new um, plot points to the story that we didn't see before. And that forces us to sometimes shake our model. Um, uh, for example, from, um, from my own work, uh, hopefully this doesn't get too into the weeds. I hope it doesn't. Go for it. It's okay. Okay. Um, but so, I, like I said, right, I work on sieges of Constantinople. Up until 2010, um, the prevailing narrative of how those worked was that there was one major siege um, in the 670s and one major siege in the 710s. That was it. And um, what historians have come to realize is, well, okay, all of our knowledge about the one from the 670s is based on one guy. Nobody else talks about it. Mm, but there was kind of an assumption, well, we don't have too many sources. This is a pretty dark period in history. So he's got a really detailed narrative. It makes sense. We're going to go with it. What we've realized more and more is that, well, yeah, he has a detailed narrative, but it's wrong. Um, that event didn't happen. Uh, basically, what's happened is this, this historian is writing, you know, about two centuries after these events. And he's got two sources that talk about the time period. They don't agree with each other. Um, and so he's tried to make them agree with each other by combining them. And it's ingenious, but it's wrong. <laughs> he did it incorrectly. And so he created this whole new siege of Constantinople in the 670s that didn't happen. And it's as we sort of reinterpret some of this information or we get new data or we find new sources that can challenge the narrative of these, as we've been given it that can help shake away some of these preconceived notions we've got about truth, about history, if we want to take it back to theology, right, about God, about what it means to follow him, and sort of broaden our perspective and help get us closer to what that actually looks like than we were before. Yeah, because I mean, that's that what you as you describe that, that sounds very much like the the journey that you've had as you've described it. Like, you know, I mean, you had these you had this one source, right? Mm -hmm. And then as you looked at it or as you thought about it more, as you studied more, all of this stuff, all of a sudden you're like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> this this is not, not right or not enough or however you want to say that. And uh, it's, it's just really interesting how your own life has mirrored um, your work in some ways. And I suspect that probably wasn't something you sat down and said, well, because of my life and the disruptions <laughs> I've had in it, I'm going to now study the sieges of Constantinople in the 600s. Like, I, I doubt I doubt that happened, right? <laughs> no, not particularly. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, like, it turns out, uh, this is my being a geek here, I guess, is that our story intrudes on us everywhere we are, even and maybe especially when we don't know it, um, when we don't realize that. But, uh, yeah. I'm interested in that, that point though that you're making is that so that's where the disruption comes in right so professionally historians are used to certain things changing um, maybe maybe not i don't know but it would seem like that's part of the game part of the um profession if you're going to go into history and you're going to be looking for things then you have to be open to the idea that you might find something that changes your perception on such as the siege you mentioned. Uh, 
I don't find that to be the case with theology, and I don't want to make you speak outside of your area of uh, comfort, but I'm curious what makes it so that since it ties to your personal life, how, mm-hmm. how were you able to move beyond a history or as Ryan likes a story that you inherited uh, to get to somewhere new? I suspect that it's not just, and I think this is probably true in your profession too, it's not just that there's this new data or new interpretation and it sounds really nice, so you're going to go there. That's usually how conservative Christians paint liberal or progressive Christians, right? right? It's not that easy. So maybe you could give us a window into how you handled that. How did you handle adopting or leaning into a news story as you started to uncover that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's an excellent question because, right, um, there are there are plenty of historians sort of taking where I know first and then moving into some of the other, uh, other area, right? There are plenty of historians who find a data point that does not seem to align perfectly well upon first glance with the established narrative and decide that based on that point alone, they're just going to blow the whole thing up because they want to make a name for themselves or right. they don't yeah. like the narrative as it's been established. Yeah. They, they want to publish something. Um, <laughs> so like that happens and that's, you're exactly right. That's, that's not the process that a good historian goes through, nor is it the process that somebody who actually is interested in understanding their faith better should go through. Um, that's following God does not mean taking one thing and being like, yes, that's the one now and discarding everything else. That's I was going to say cough, abortion, cough. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Like a historian shouldn't pick one thing and go from there. And a theologian shouldn't do just one thing and go from there. Um, That wouldn't work for me. Right. So like I said, that this, this concept of Aquinas and moral neutrality was a pivot point but that didn't change anything overnight about how I thought about this. Um, That involved uh, really digging deep for me because of how I work into, into the scriptures, into the history of how the church has viewed questions of sexuality, of homosexuality, uh, of these sorts of things and trying to understand and see, well, okay, is the way that I've been taught is that actually, right, as I was taught it was, the unbroken uniform teaching of the faith for all time? Um, or is there room in Christianity for someone like me? You mean it, it's more complicated than you were originally led to believe? I know. Shocking, right? Imagine uh, that, right? <laughs> and that's, in fact, what I found, right? Uh, so... Um, while I was working all of this personally, again, Ryan, a moment of sort of my professional and my personal lives intersecting, um, I was in a class uh, on the history of the papacy and the law. And in the course of that, I found a really interesting text um, that I decided to study and look at more, a book called the Liber Gomorianus, uh, the Book of Gomorrah, um, by a guy named oh Peter Damien, an 11th century, he's a doctor of the church, so he's a big deal, um, one of these important figures in the West who's instrumental in kind of making the Catholic Church into what it looks like today. He's He helps shape the reform that makes the Pope into the Pope, that, that does all this stuff. 
And he also wrote this interesting book um, where he's the first person in all of Christian history to do a dedicated subject uh, or a dedicated treatment on the subject of sodomy. Can I say that? Is that okay to yeah. say? Okay. Um, and so in, in the course of his argument, right, he says, hey, sodomy is the worst thing, um, just the worst sin, worse than blasphemy, because while um, uh, Israel was just sent into exile for blaspheming, Sodom burned. Um, that's sort of his argument. And I read this and I was like, well, this seems pretty damning for my attempts to, to look for a different place in the church, a different understanding. And so I wanted to study the text more. And I found out, and the first article that I ever got published looked at this text and was sort of the result of this examination of um, nobody listened to him, zero people. Everybody thought he was wrong and in fact ignored him. Um, he wrote this book to the Pope and told the Pope he had to do these things. He had to excommunicate um, and sort of um, uh, remove from the church any priest, any cleric, anyone who did any of these things. And the Pope said, no, he wasn't going to do that. And when you look at the way that church law approached the same subjects that Damien talks about in his book and that he rails against, they basically ignore him entirely, despite the fact that in a whole bunch of other topics, they listen to him. So this is not just he was an insignificant figure. This is he was emphatically ignored on this subject by trying to make the church take a harsh stance. And so this really forced the question to me of, well, okay, at the very least, this subject is complicated. This is, this is not a simple black and white issue like I wanted it to be. Um, and that sort of gave me, again, that gave me the space to think about this more as I looked into, okay, what are other ways that we could interpret these scriptures? What, what are other ways that we could think about these things? What is the cultural and historical context here? Um, this sorts, sort of study, these sorts of increased data points, um, caused, uh, uh to use a fun technical term, I guess, a paradigm shift that gave me space to think about things differently. I like that. I think, um, I think that's probably, again, another point where a lot of people could resonate, uh, those nagging questions that just mm -hmm. keep on pushing, keep on pushing, even when you get answers or even when you know what the answer should be. And there, there's that voice that says, but is it though? Or yeah, but what about this? And I hadn't thought of it before. Like there's this accumulation of either weight behind those questions or accumulation of those questions that kind of makes that room for people. Uh, at least it did for me. I could, I could certainly describe it that way for me as well. Of that weight of those questions kept on accumulating where I had to just spend time thinking about it. And by the time I <laughs> finished thinking about it, that paradigm shift did come, come about. Yeah, it's. I think for me, it was almost like those kinds of questions build up, and at some point, there's a critical mass that's reached, you know. And mm -hmm. I think that's different for everybody, and you know, and probably in some ways similar for everybody too. But there is some at some point the paradigm shifts, or you, I guess, you could continue to suppress it somehow. But generally speaking, when we talk about these kinds of journeys and such, it seems like everybody has that paradigm shift or at least 
the door is opened to a paradigm shift, perhaps. Um, and yeah. And I think maybe, so I, I know that not everybody likes history the way I do. I know not everybody can engage with it the way that somebody like me can or that they would ever want to. Um, but I think one of the things that was was helpful for me and where I think sort of looking at church history or reading some of these ancient or medieval theologians can be useful is a lot of us spend so much of our time um, around people who think like we do, especially in regards to faith or to God. Um, and I think that for me, right, that, that was true, especially moving to a new city. You know, in undergrad, I was in a campus ministry, and so everybody around me thought the same way I did. Moving here, I started going to a church, and I was new to a city, so that was pretty much my whole community. So everybody thought the same that I did. But when I read these theologians or I looked at this history, it forced me to interact with Christians who thought really differently than I did. Um, and that, I think, is one of those things that can drive that paradigm shift, is interacting with people, whether it be you know people who've been dead for 1,500 years or your neighbor across the way who think differently. They sort of become some of those, those data points, those, those things that don't work in the, um, the paradigm that you're operating in and can eventually lead to that critical mass. For me, history helped do that. I love that. Uh, there's this uh, philosopher that I really like, uh, John Caputo, and he talks about the insistence, the insistence of God, that it's not that God um, declares things necessarily, but that he insists. And uh, this is where he loves his word, perhaps, which is very annoying as you read him. He <laughs> he talks about perhaps, and I was I was that jerk that every once in a while, well, actually, especially when I read Caputo extensively, people would ask me a question, I'd say perhaps, so I got his smugness, which was uh, fun for people. Well, you like can't that. be a philosopher and not be smug. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that it's uh, that comes from God and, and Caputo, it comes from other people, the insistence that they are just living their lives. They are thinking uh, thoughts that are different. They're believing beliefs that are different. And by being with people, it kind of insists upon you. And that could happen in a text, of course, but it could also happen in a history and it could also happen in the relationship that you have with folks. Mm -hmm. You know, something that, that struck me while you were um, talking, Bobby, is that it seems like not only did history and your interactions with these, whether they were documents or, you know, other faith communities or whatever it was, they didn't just, um, they didn't just kind of open the door. They didn't just cause the paradigm shift. Uh, it sounds like, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like they also uh, helped you walk through that door and have, is it too much to say they've helped sustain you in the new, I don't know what the right term is, but the new story, new place you find yourself? I don't think that's too far at all. Um, I mean, as I as I look at my wall here, and again, as someone who is attending a Baptist church, I have one, two, three, four icons on the wall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wasn't one of them blessed by a priest for you? Yes, yes, yeah. in fact. Um, I, I think about the fact that, right, um, <laughs> you know, as I, as I have found myself 
struggling with not being accepted by the traditions I've come from um, or having to leave some of those spaces, right? Because, um, because I'm, I'm not able to fit in them anymore. Uh, I think it has been really helpful and really sustaining um, to recognize that the church is broader than the tradition I grew up in and mm -hmm. to connect with sort of this big C church and all of its magnificent beauty and blemishes and, and um, sad chapters and glories and all of these things all at the same time to recognize, yeah, there was space for all these people here and there's space for me too. Um, and so I think that's been helpful. Like I, I found it difficult in the past several years to sort of read scripture in the same way that I used to. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the things that's helped of late is I picked up um, a little common or uh, not a commentary set, a little sort of devotional quote unquote, right? But it's, it um, follows the liturgical calendar, which as a Baptist is weird and new for me, but it does that. Um, and uh, every, passage for the liturgical calendar, they give some commentary from ancient Christian or medieval Christian theologians. And so that, that's that been helpful because sometimes I read what they say and I'm like, well, that seems weird and I don't connect with that at all uh -huh. um, because they're operating in a radically different framework than I am mm -hmm. and they care about very different things. But sometimes I read it and I think, wow, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense and speaks to me really powerfully. And I think it again does this thing where not just in the moments of paradigm shift, but like you were saying, Ryan, it, 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 um, it has helped me continue walking in a world that, you know, as difficult as it is to sit in the tension of not knowing, um, there is at least a safety of staying in a place, right? Of staying in the familiar. Um, going into unfamiliar territory may very well be the right thing to do, but it can be very lonely and very painful. Um, and I think that the uh, sort of continued engagement with, you know, the, the cloud of witnesses, the saints who have gone before, um, can really help sustain us in that time. At least for me, it's been able to do that. So... What you said brought up a, a thought to me, uh, and it's something we grapple with here on our podcast quite a bit, which is where do our heritages fit in? And Ryan asked a fantastic question about uh, does the, the work that you do, the history that you do help sustain you? And I love your answer. Um, I mean, mine's the same with philosophy. So when, when I read other philosophers, I'm like, yes, this is so great. And yet I don't find that in my Lutheran heritage. And I often ask myself this question. So I want to ask it of you because I'm sure people who are listening in this same journey, they've asked themselves this question. So it's just, I think, a really good one to ask. Uh, why are you still in your heritage? I think that that is a good question. Um, and I think it's it's one that's maybe a little bit complicated to answer. Um because I think on, on the one hand, um, you know, I am Protestant, I'm in a reformed background, that that is my heritage. Um, interestingly, I have never felt compelled and have never done so 
um, to study the Reformation, to study the history of the reformers. I've studied history. I've studied Christian history. I just, the Byzantine Empire ends in 1453, and that's before the Reformation, and I've just never bothered to go oh, after interesting. that. Um, so I have never engaged with that part of my Christian heritage, um, at least in terms of what I study. Mm -hmm. I think the reason why I've, I've stayed in sort of the broadly reformed world, um, like I, so for instance, right, when I moved here, um, I went to Presbyterian churches, not because I'm Presbyterian, but because it aligned pretty well with my theology. Um, and I've been to two different Presbyterian churches, um, while I, while I was here. Um, and I've kind of had to leave both for some, some sort of theological issues, uh, usually relating to sexuality stuff. And I think that's part of the thing that's been difficult for me is a lot of the theology that I inherited, at least, while some of my, um, while I've, I've become much more able to accept gray rather than black and white. And while I am much more able to say, you know, I don't know about things, a lot of the formulation of concepts like the gospel or substitutionary atonement or things like that that I grew up with, I still generally in some way, shape or form hold to be true, um, generally. And so it's made it difficult because there aren't too many churches that do both of those things um, yeah. that, you know, are more um, quote unquote conservative with lots of their theology, but affirming of, of the gays. Um, and so one of the reasons I've ended up at this Baptist church is because it's an affirming Baptist church. And it's been an interesting experience for me because they're, less reformed, I believe, than I grew up with. Mm. And so it's been kind of uh, an inverse. For the past few years, um, I have valued doctrine more than being accepted. And at this point, I feel like I'm kind of testing the waters of maybe valuing belonging over perfect doctrine. And that, that probably has to do with the continued growth that we've been talking about, right? Recognizing that um, that the big C church encompasses much more than I thought it did. Um, but that's probably why I, I'm still generally in my tradition is in a lot of ways, it, I don't know, this might be a bit too much to use it in this context, but a verse that has always resonated with me um, for years has been you know, in John six, after Jesus has told everybody, you've, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody goes away and is like, ah, and, um, cannibal, he goes to the disciples. Exactly. Right. What, what, what's this guy doing? Um, but he goes to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says to him, Lord, to where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Um, and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that passage has felt, um, like a trap, um, like I have been caught by those words. Mm -hmm. um, but they have, I think that, you know, I, I go back and forth depending on the phase and what I'm struggling with of whether those feel like comforts or terrors, um, those words. And 
I think that that factors into a lot of things. Um, Christ is, for me, truth. And a lot of the ways that I understand that grow and shift and change, but a lot of it has remained the same. And so it allows me to put up with things that might not be perfect um, to sort of stay connected to things that feel important. I imagine that changes your relationship then with those things that you don't find to be perfect instead of maybe, I don't know, maybe instead of trying your damnedest to fix those things, you've learned to sit in that tension uh, personally, just like you have professionally with the the changing of history and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I think... um... I think I am much less prone to try to be a, a transformative person. I, 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 that's not really my goal. Like I don't. Um, Sorry, I don't. I'm just thinking of various ways that Bobby is definitely a traditionalist. Yes. Um, I mean, I. Uh, yeah, my my goal in sort of you know getting my doc. I I don't want to be the premier Byzantinist in the world. Um, I want to teach. I want to have an effect at the level that I can have an effect in my relationships by by spreading things that I think are important and interesting to the people that I come in contact with. Um, and I think that that's relatively true for me in terms of some of these doctrinal issues or some of these, um, these, these issues where it feels like I worry about the direction the faith is going or things like that. Um, for a long time, it was particularly difficult for me. It felt like when um, when the church, you know, was not welcoming towards gay people, um, that it was not just a, a rejection of me, but that that went beyond the church doing that to God doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were a number of years where it just felt impossible that God could want anything to do with me because the church didn't want anything to do with me. Um, and I think what was a big pivotal and, and transformative thing for me was actually um, dwelling on the idea and the story of the Samaritan woman at the well um, and thinking about how this is a woman whose community did reject her, who the religious authorities rejected, who was a social pariah and a social outcast. Um, and yet Jesus actively seeks her out and does not condemn her. And she is the first person who he reveals to that he is the Messiah. She is the first person who is entrusted with his mission and a recognition that Christ seeks the outcast. And if if Christ accepts me, if God accepts me, then it doesn't particularly matter what the church thinks. Um, I hope that they change. I hope Hopefully that they- they'll catch up, but yeah. In the meantime, yeah, it, it that's I think what has given me some space to sit in in spaces where it's not perfect is a recognition that well the church is not and the church will not be and I can hope and work in the spaces that I can affect for change in personal relationships with friends or family, um, but I'm not a person who's gonna lead a charge to transform a denomination. A, I don't have that platform, and B, it's it's not me. Okay, so, wow, we've talked about a lot, and it's been really good. Um, 
But I feel like there may still be some people out there who are really appreciating your story, but not entirely sure how, you know, church history or history in general might be something they should um, look at more or learn a bit from. So, you know, what, what, like, what would you say to that person who's asking that question of like, but why does this matter to me? Not necessarily your own specific story, although maybe, but I more mean the the broader idea of, you know, history and church history, especially. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think that's a, that's an important question for that person to be asking, right? Because it's very easy to listen to people talk about stuff that's been important to them. Um, and to think, well, that's great for you. Um, and as you know, I, I am not expecting anyone who is listening to suddenly go out and study all about the Arab sieges of Constantinople. <laughs> A, because good luck, there aren't many things written about it. And B, um, that's very niche. You don't have to do that. Uh, but I think, you know, like you, like you mentioned at the outset, Ryan, I think it's very easy for us as Protestants um, to basically treat church history like this, right? We have all of the Old Testament, and that is all that the ancient world matters, um, the bits about the Hebrews, and where they maybe pivot occasionally with people like the Persians, or maybe the Babylonians, and sort of the Romans. Um, we've got that. And then we get to the New Testament, and we talk about, you know, history in as far as it relates to Jesus, or the apostles. And then the apostles die at the end of Acts, or I guess sometime after Revelation for John. Um, and uh, we get a gap of about 1500 years. And then yeah. history starts again, and Martin Luther is born. Um, and I think that, you know, whether the study of history is, is particularly important, I think, for Christians in the sense that when we assume that church history started with Martin Luther or with John Calvin or with John Wesley or, or whoever might have uh, founded our particular traditions, we ignore the fact that all of those things that we're taking for granted, um, such as that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, were heavily contested and were things about which the church struggled and split and fought for centuries. And we just look at them and say, yep, and that's, that's good. Like, that's true. Jesus was both human and divine. I'm glad we got that settled back in the fourth century. Excellent. But to understand how we got there, I think is important. Otherwise, we run the risk of falling into um, some of the, the biggest dangers that I see with the Sola Scriptura crowd. And, you know, I, I grew up in that. Um, I joke that I'm a two and a half point Calvinist because I half agree with all the points. Um, and I think the, the, one of the biggest dangers though with that is every single theology has fathers, has doctors, has churchmen who uh, act as the tradition to inform what they believe. And I think one of the difficulties in Protestantism um, is that we assume we don't have that. And that makes us very, very um, clingy 
towards our particular interpretation of the scriptures because we say, well, it's just what the Bible says. <laughs> yeah. And it's clear. I mean, it clearly says that. Right. Um, but I think that's one of the things that studying church history, even in just a very superficial way, can help us see is that, well, the Bible says lots of things. And it has said different things to different people. And to understand why it is that you believe what you believe matters. To understand how you got to what you think is true, whether you think it's true, and why that might be the case, I think can help rid us of some of our, um, not just chronological snobbery, which is true in general, right? There's this weird assumption that people in the past were stupid just because mm -hmm. they were in the past. Um, but it can also rid us of some of our, our doctrinal and um, um, uh, denominational snobbery, right? By helping us see that, okay, yeah, we have a particular interpretation and it might be right. I'm not saying it's not possible that it's right, but it did not grow up in a vacuum. It came from somewhere and understanding how that happened and that it was not as simple as one person opening the Bible 50 years ago, um, is I think really important for us in this process of growth. Hmm. So I, so I guess then the only, like, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I was thinking about how whatever theology it is or whatever, these things go in cycles too, right? Like none of these mm -hmm. things ever go away or, you know, to, uh, steal the very often used from the the guy in Ecclesiastes, like there really is nothing new <laughs> in that right. sense, right? Um, so obviously though, like you said, people are not gonna go get a PhD in church history or um, the Byzantine empire or any of that. Most of us are not gonna do that. So obviously that's not what you or I or Nate are asking people to do. Um, but do you have any thoughts or maybe some suggestions just about how someone who just has a little bit of time here and there, um, who's interested but doesn't really know how to start doing something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, there's a couple a couple fathers that I could recommend, a couple early theologians that I think are interesting and relatively accessible if you wanted to dive into um actual primary sources. Um, someone like uh, Julian of Norwich, uh, a 13th century English nun, um, who wrote, writes very, very lovely um, accounts of sort of her direct interactions with God. Uh, mm. And I think I always assign that one to my students, a little selection out of it, and it usually comes around finals time. Um, and it's a very helpful reminder for them because one of Julian's chief refrains that comes from God himself in the text is, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Um, Julian is a very accessible text because I think she really gets to the heart of God's love. That is the central focus of it, even as um, there's some weird stuff in it because it's a vision. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's also great too. You don't get many writings like that from women. So it's exactly. it's nice to have that in there. Yeah. Um, another, if you want something a bit more classical, would be something like the Confessions of Augustine. Um, he's still St. Augustine, so he's still a bit difficult to read. Um, but the Confessions at least is sort of his his spiritual biography. So you get a sense of how he went from not being a Christian to being a Christian. It can be a really interesting glimpse into the mind of somebody 
um, back in the fourth century and what made them believe in this whole Christianity thing, which can be a pretty interesting glimpse because some of it will seem familiar, some of it will not. Um, but uh, if somebody is looking for something, say, that's not a primary source, um, anything by a guy named Peter Brown is going to be pretty good. Um, he invented the field of late antiquity, uh, which is sort of this whole time period, and wrote a biography of St. Augustine, wrote a bunch of introductions to the time itself that treat the councils, that treat all this stuff. He's a very good, accessible writer who writes very entertainingly and very clearly as far as academics go. Well, and one last thought I had is, as we were talking is, um, you know, if, if those kinds of readings aren't your thing, I might suggest you should give it a try anyway. But, but if you can't for whatever reason, or that's not going to work for you, maybe it's like experiencing something similar to what Bobby did, even though a lot of his was through, through texts, it was also through the people that he met. So maybe it's, how can you expand your horizons in terms of the people you interact with? Of course, knowing that's difficult these days, right? But maybe you don't need to read about the history of the Orthodox Church. Maybe it's you need to talk to someone who's an Orthodox Christian or when this is a thing again, go to an Orthodox service. Although, um, you know, be prepared for a long one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can be very um, long. But those churches are beautiful, by the way. Anyway, oh, um, yes. Maybe it's, you know, maybe that's a good place to start, too, if you're intimidated by some of these writings is, well, maybe, you know, it's expanding your horizons that way. And you'll find pretty quickly how, um, like, I remember when I went to the seminary and I had, what was, oh, I, I made some joke about the rapture, not knowing that they don't believe in that you know, because I, I don't know that I thought every Christian did, but it was just such a given to me that it didn't even occur that they might not, you know? Um, and so it's just, you find stuff like that when you uh, venture out of your own tribe a little bit, at least as much as you can in these days and be safe anyway. So um, I want to ask a, a really off the wall, different question. Okay. I, I've noticed this about academics. We all have those things that matter to us. And, uh, you know, I want to value that as much as possible. And that's for you reading history and empathizing with historians or people of history and, and so forth. But I also notice that uh, academics have obscure hobby horses, things that they you get them on the track and, you know, students are really good at doing this sometimes of really probing and trying to get a professor off the rails. Um, I'm curious as a historian, what's one of your obscure hobby horses? Oh, I know one. <laughs> <laughs> Brian does. He's, uh, he's heard me rant about it multiple times. Um, there are, there are a few things that get me as passionate, um, and uh, well, now I now I will definitely have to suggest that a colleague of mine listen to this as the perfidity of the Venetians. Um, <laughs> he really does not like Venice. Yeah, bad bad garbage fish people. Um, <laughs> but uh, and this is historical Venice, modern Venetians. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, be like, careful. Um, but uh, but but your city is built on garbage, and you should feel bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
and I could get into it, but that would be long, and Ryan knows how long that would be. So well, it's well, up to I you. Mean, it's due to you in your childhood to make you hate them so much. Oh, they did nothing to me. Um, the Venetian... yeah, just give us the quick gist. Okay. The, the, the short, like, two-minute version, one-minute version. Um, uh, basically, right, this all comes down to the Fourth Crusade. Um, the uh, Crusaders had chartered with the Venetians in order to uh, get a bunch of boats to take them to Egypt, but they vastly overestimated how many people were coming on the crusade, and so they couldn't afford to pay the Venetians. And now, one brief fairness to the Venetians, they had invested a lot of their economy in this, so if they didn't get paid back for it, Venice might have gone bankrupt. So it, it was a big undertaking. But they decided to just hijack the crusade for their own purposes. And first, they used the crusaders to go attack the very Catholic, very Hungarian city of Zara, um, just in modern Croatia, just, you know, across the bay from them, which crusaders should not do, generally, attack other Catholics. Um, <laughs> but then, then they went and attacked Constantinople. Um, and the Venetian doge was old and blind and probably in his 80s and knew very well that the promise that this guy had given them. So basically what happened, they're in Zara, a pretender to the Byzantine throne shows up and says, hey, I'll give you, and I'm going to paraphrase in language that the Venetians would have heard and the rest of the crusaders wouldn't. The Venetians would have heard the guy say, I'll give you 11 quadrillion dollars if you help me take back over the empire. And all of the crusaders are sitting there like, oh yes, 11 quadrillion dollars, really wonderful. What a, what a reasonable sum of money. And the Venetians are sitting there like, well, that's absurd. They can't pay that much, but I bet we can get something good out of this. And so they agreed. And they went and they besieged the city and, you know, the city freaked out and put new people in charge. And then they met with all of the crusaders and said, we don't have that much money. I could give you the whole empire and we wouldn't have that much money. And it didn't matter. And then they besieged the city and they captured it and they destroyed half of it. And the Venetians took the other half of it back to Venice and have just pretended for a long time that it's theirs. Half of the city is stolen from Constantinople during a crusade that they hijacked because they were awful people. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And just so you know, folks, if if he, you know, I when I heard this from him the first time, it was considerably longer than that. <laughs> it can be much longer. There are all sorts of little side stories, but they didn't come up. <laughs> one, one thing about Bobby when he tells you historical things is that he makes them very interesting. So I didn't mind, um, you know, by the fifth or sixth time you hear it, it's maybe a different <laughs> story. But... <laughs> Well, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Bobby as much as Ryan and I did. It was great to hear about his passion for history and what that's done for his life. Uh, and congratulations once again for getting towards the end of that finish line. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, great. Uh, I'm super jealous. Ryan was a jerk and finished way before me. And <laughs> Well, Ryan didn't have as many responsibilities as you did. That's but... true. <laughs> Still, we're glad that you joined us. We're glad that you're on your way to completing that uh, doctorate. And good luck on that defense as you uh, prepare for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. It was good. And for everyone who's listening, thank you for listening. Uh, remember, as always, we are on the frontier. So that means it's okay not to know.
even as you search for those clearings, even as you search for those bearings that help you get through this life, it's okay to live in that tension of not knowing where you're going to go, where you even are. Just on that journey, being with other people on the frontier is where we want you to be. If you haven't already, please uh, join us on our Facebook page at Frontier Faith Podcast. You just type that in and you should find us. It is pretty bare right now, so go on there and show people that we actually, uh, well, don't show people because no one's there. Show me and Ryan that (laughs) we exist, I promise. (laughs) That we actually have people listening to this podcast. And uh, as always, we love your feedback. Uh, positive or critical or constructive. Let us know what's going on, what you would like to hear about, what you would like to discuss. And if you're following along with our project, are we hitting the commitments that we need to? Are we finding goals that speak towards a community on the frontier? What do you want to talk about or hear about when we come to uh, finishing that project or exploring it even further? Let us know. You can do so on our Facebook page, but you can also do so at FrontierFaithPodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we hope to see you next time as we continue our exploration of this frontier. Frontier.